0: Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy, presented by Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Today, you're joining us for episode 12, and we're really lucky to have our guest today. He's, as Ron Burgundy would say, kind of a big deal. (laughs) My why is to connect with people so that we may boldly contribute to an improved world. I'm really excited to have connected with our guest today. Over the past several months, collaborating with him creates confidence in me that I am actively living out my why. I believe that what he is doing and what he's contributing is going towards an improved world. And I hope that we can do even more together this year in 2024. Today we have with us Spencer Smith. Thanks for being here, Spencer. What's up,
1: Chris? Thanks thanks for that intro, man, pretty sick.
0: Spencer has, has spent his entire 15-year career in the insurance industry with the last decade focused on self-insurance. From various financial analyst roles to stop-loss sales, benefits RFP software sales, and now joining Pareto Health as an SVP of consultant development, Spencer has a diverse perspective on all things self-funding. We're going to get into that. He is known in the industry, in the benefits industry, for his YouTube whiteboard series called Stop Loss with Spencer, his video podcast called Self-Funded with Spencer, and his creation and portrayal of the satirical character Tom Broker. Who is hilarious. His <laughs> overall active presence on LinkedIn, you can find him everywhere on LinkedIn. On a personal basis, Spencer enjoys going to the gym, attending the occasional heavy metal concert, driving real fast in his Roush Mustang, and most of all, spending time, his free time with his wife of 13 years, Courtney, and his two children, Brooklyn and Sebastian. Spencer, thank you again for joining us and helping us kick off this 2024 year. Yeah, that's my pleasure, man, and thanks for having me. I guess this is the first
1: podcast of the year, right?
0: Well, we actually have uh, one that that dropped on January second. Okay, and so this, but uh, you'll be our first guest shot twenty twenty four. Twenty twenty four. Okay, right. awesome, man. Well, that's thanks right. for having
1: me, and thanks for reading my bio as if I didn't write it for you. I appreciate that. It sounded very authentic.
0: <laughs> well, it it's better that we get your words and not my <laughs> version of what your words are. Well, so, isn't that
1: always weird when you write a bio for somebody else and you're like you're writing it in third person, but you're like. It's is obviously the person writing right. it and you try to be conscientious of that. And it still ends up coming out like, Oh, that dude wrote it for himself.
0: Yeah. Obviously <clears throat> our friend, Chris Hamilton was on uh, the podcast a couple episodes ago and he referred to himself in third person. And I really wanted to roast him, <laughs> um, the Chris Hamilton. And I was like, it's weird for Chris Hamilton to be saying, you know, when the Chris Hamilton walks in, I'm like, Oh, interesting. Third person. I like it. Um, what's good how how are you enjoying i mean it's the beginning of 2024 How how's the start of the year for so far?
1: Well, so crazy enough it's January third. So uh, obviously doing a podcast with you this morning. I head off to uh, Huntsville, Alabama tomorrow. Um, Hunts actually, Vegas, Hunts, Hunts Vegas, but actually just land there to go to Gunnersville, Alabama. I don't know if you know where Gunnersville is. Not. Um, my friend, uh, what is? Oh, I was going to lost. I was going to say Chris Hamilton because you got Chris Hamilton on my mind. Scott Smith invited me out there to do a podcast, his podcast, and then we're going to shoot a Tom Brokers skit while I'm there too. Fantastic! Yeah. Yeah. can't
0: wait. Huntsville, I've actually spent a lot of time there. There's a military base there, Mm -hmm. Redstone Arsenal, that a close family friend of ours is a retired general now, but he was a three-star general that oversaw Redstone Arsenal, which was really impressive place. But that's great. Um, Thanks for squeezing us in, especially with the busy travel schedule. Something I learned uh, more in depth about from your podcast, Self-Funded with Spencer, which you can find on YouTube for sure. Mm-hmm. A- Apple podcast,
1: Apple, Spotify, distribute through Spotify Podcasts, okay. or so a couple other places too. Yeah.
0: And uh, absolutely all over LinkedIn, but the episode with Mark Testa around fasting, mm-hmm. because yeah. I'm beginning my intermittent fasting journey. Okay. Uh, and I know you're a practitioner. Yeah. Um, how long have you been practicing this, this fasting and how long has fasting been part of your healthcare journey?
1: Okay. Um, I mean, I'll give you the vague answer because I can't tell you exactly when I started, but at least the last few years, um, I have an exercise science degree uh, from college in addition to studying business. It's always been a personal um, focus of mine. And so that started me 20 plus years ago down this path of understanding nutrition. But because I don't really practice it in my you know, my work life, it's something I do on the side just to learn about myself and kind of focus on longevity and things like that. So I've probably been intermittent fasting the last three to five years on and off. Um, there was a period of time, probably almost a year, where I was doing pretty much a 16-8 uh, fast every day. So 16 hours of not eating, eight hour feeding window starting around noon and ending at six, right? Or six to eight. Um, and then I'm not a super, super strict adherent. It's directionally, the goal is to be adherent as much as possible. Uh, but I don't, I'm i not a stickler looking at it, my stopwatch counting down just to make sure I don't cheat, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's one of those really cool things, Chris, and I'm curious to hear how you're doing it, um, that the, it's really simple to follow. You just don't eat you right just don't eat there's no have to do this at this time and add this thing and put right. your macros, but you just don't
0: eat. it's very simple to do and and for me, as long as I get water and I get black coffee i'm I'm good yeah. and like normally, just the you know I shouldn't say chaos, the busyness of a morning with little ones at home, yeah, you wake up and you're scurrying around already you're, I'm not necessarily sitting down to make breakfast for myself. I'm making breakfast for my boys, I'm packing their lunches, we're getting them out the door. I'm doing a quick cold plunge. I'm heading out the door. I jump into the office and sometimes before I know it, I look up, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then at that point I'm like, well, another hour or so and I can eat again. Yeah. And it's not always intentional, but I'm trying to be more, more intentional in particular about what time I stop eating at night. So I can not necessarily eat a big meal and then go to bed an hour later or two hours later, try to give myself a three hour plus window then start the fast at that point. Yeah, and then see how long I can go.
1: Well, the the one thing that I've sort of pulled back from, and I'll be curious. I don't know. Is your what is your intention with the fasting? Is there a target of weight, or what? What's,
0: what are we hoping? Want to Wanna drop weight okay. and be able to just kickstart, you know, uh, a health journey. Okay, I'm completely abandoned the gym. I've completely abandoned my yoga practice. I'm <clears throat> I'm cold plunging now. I'm about to start saunaing uh, and I figured this is a great catalyst. And if I can start doing this and and the commitment, keep the commitment of doing it, I think that achievement will help me get to the next achievement of saying, let's add this in. Maybe I'll go for a run. Maybe I'll add this. And as opposed to this, it's January 1st, let's go full tilt and I'll I'll make that last for me 10 days and then I'm out.
1: Yeah, I've never been huge on um, resolutions because I feel like resolutions are intentionally designed to set you up for failure, right? Because like you said, most people go on January 1st I'm going to fix everything about my life in starting now. And it's like, no, just pick what you're doing. One thing to focus on maybe the first 30 days, do that, control that, then add as you go. But to put all that pressure and expectation on yourself, just because the new calendar year starts to fix everything in your life, I think that's just setting yourself up to, to end up losing. The one that i would say, though, when you start fasting, it's hard to get enough protein in. So I started pulling back a little bit not fasting all the time because getting adequate protein for the demands in the gym and things like that. I didn't necessarily want to lose much weight at that point. I was just sort of looking to add muscle and rebalance and all those things. So if you go too heavy on fasting, you can make it very difficult for yourself to hit those other macros. Right? So it's a start there and then fine tune over time.
0: I think there's fine tuning constantly throughout. No doubt. That's life. The (laughs) man,
1: everything about it It never stops. Yeah,
0: that's right. So, um, Spencer, give us a little bit of of the highlight reel about where are you from and what helped shape you into who you are today.
1: Do we have the rest of the podcast for that? We
0: we can. Uh, so
1: I the the short version of that is I grew up not too far down the road in Arlington, Texas, um, and then spent some time in Mansfield, went to high school in Mansfield, which is just a suburb of Arlington. Um, was a soccer player my whole life, played through college, was a college captain and did all the things and thought I might have a, a opportunity to be a pro. When it looked like that wasn't really going to pan out, I didn't know what to do with my life, as you can imagine. Um, my identity was wrapped up for 15 plus years in a sport and so once that sport was no longer part of my identity i didn't quite know who i was or what i was going to do so i got a job in the normal world started studying stand-up comedy started studying acting um did some improv just because i thought well there's a creative outlet and that seems fun And that didn't really go anywhere, although I spent five years doing it. And lo and behold, it's come back full circle like a decade. I'm I'm obviously giving you the Notes version of my career, but all those skills that I developed that I thought I had abandoned have now come back in the way of podcasting and sales. And really it was one of those weird things in life where you don't realize what you're actually preparing for until a very long time in the future. And you go, oh, that's what all that stuff was for. It wasn't to become an actor. It was to do this in sales and podcasting, be a leader,
0: etc. That's amazing. In the improv world, is it the uh, is there a concept or a practice of and then? Yes, and yes, and yes, and okay. Yeah. So that concept of yes and absolutely falls in line mm-hmm. for salespeople mm-hmm. because there is not just one definitive answer. There is what your customer needs are and what their needs are today and what they need to be tomorrow and what their future state looks looks like and that gap between there mm-hmm. and that that skill set and practicing that yes and has to be really powerful.
1: Well, you one of the best deployment I've seen that in the business world. There's a gentleman named Rob Gelb. He's the CEO of a company called Valence, which is in the insurance industry, self-funded insurance. And he deploys that internally with his teams. They even have t-shirts that say, yes, and with a company logo on it. Because if you come to the table with an idea, they're going to improv that idea. So you could be an account manager coming to the CFO and saying, I've got an idea about this. And they're going to go, yes, and. And they're going to try to pick it apart in a way that w- if that's a good idea or if we think we can solve for it, we're going to help collaborate to solve for it and not just go, you're an account manager. I'm the CFO. Mm. Pat you on the head. Stay and take in your, your lane. It. It, it creates this culture of collaboration and fun in that we're all on this team and there's not this huge condensed hierarchy. I think it's a pretty cool way to conduct business. And it's, you know, I think it, when I see them interact as a team, you can tell the co- company culture is really strong.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. That's very cool to actually hear that being put into practice in the intentionally too. Yeah, right, Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. So your journey in the professional world, where did you start your career in the employee benefit space? Mm-hmm. Um, and what did you do? What was the first? So
1: I mentioned earlier you, you got to read my bio where I was an analyst. Actually, I'm looking at the building right now where benefit mall used to be. Okay. Uh, I spent six years at benefit mall in the finance department and, um, was good job. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was Pursuing other things, and this was sort of my job that paid the bills. And while I was at a long-term girlfriend, and we got engaged, and you know, married, and all that stuff. Um, but I spent my twenties kind of toiling away and not really putting a lot of effort into my career. But it was a great place to start. And then I had, the, I think, the sixth year there, I had this epiphany, Chris. And I know you're in sales, so you can appreciate this. I was paying the salespeople. And I was going to the CFO every month to show what the bonuses were going to be for that month. And I remember in December, I was calculating monthly bonuses, quarterly bonuses, and annual bonuses for the salespeople. And I go, hold on a second. I'm helping calculate compensation that's three times my annual salary in one bonus check. What am I doing wrong? I'm in the wrong department. And so that that kind of made me pivot. I go, well, if these guys and gals are good at this sales thing, I've kind of avoided it. And I don't even know why I've avoided it for so long. Why don't I lean into that and start pursuing more customer facing and production roles? So that set me down the path of a broker world, being a kind of customer facing analyst and, and presenting renewals and things like that, got into stop loss sales then you know, kind of the rest is history with uh, I can fill you in with more. But I didn't start sales till I was 32 years old. And it was because, honestly, I saw how much other people were making and I thought, wow, if I grind my whole life in this salaried position forever, there's always going to be a ceiling on what's possible. But if I go down this path of sales where I am rewarded for the effort and the skill and the amount of time and productivity I put into it, I can create a life for myself that I never thought was possible before, and so that was ten years ago today, and probably one of the best decisions I ever made.
0: I think that's tremendous. It's risky, high risk, yeah, high reward, yeah, uh, and you do have to make a commitment to really invest in yourself, in training, and practicing, and learning, and studying, mm-hmm. because it you're you're naturally a likable person, and maybe it took some of you know practice through improv to be able to bring out some of those skills. But even then, there's, you know, mastering sales is not just something that you arrive at. Yeah. It yeah. is a journey. It is not a destination. You are constantly in pursuit of how to be a better salesperson. Not then the person next to you. Not then Tom Broker. Mm-hmm. How do you outperform you? Yeah. You know, and compete against yourself and. Well, just
1: dealing with the psychology of that, you've experienced this, right? The anxiety of having a production goal and the world I was in, in stop loss sales, you'd start over it again at zero the next year, right? You'd have a block of business that you could maintain, but it's like, hey, great job. Here's zero. You're all equal again. And now go work towards this really lofty goal 12 months from now. And so the anxiety of having to deal with that and trust the process for six, eight months when not a whole lot was happening everything in insurance is backloaded to January 1st effective date. Right. So 60, 70, 80% of your productivity came in a two or three month time. That's very hard and not everybody can deal with just the stress of that distance between where they are and the goal and do that repeatedly year after year after year. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> we both worked uh, for at one point for Sunlight. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was in the ancillary side of the business and you were in stop loss. But one of the things that I definitely got coached on when I was brought into the organization, and I experienced, and I would vocalize a lot, you really have to have an endurance and a, and a tolerance of pain, because <laughs> it is it is it can be yeah. a really painful process. And it's not that Sun Life is a painful employer; they're a phenomenal organization. It's just the process in sales in that industry and in, that, in those types of roles, you got to endure sometimes six, eight, nine months of just pure defeat. Mm-hmm. Because the very best in the business still have a ninety-four percent losing rate, mm-hmm. right? And so you're striving, you're killing yourself to be the six percent. Yeah, and and well, you know what?
1: And it was even lower in stop loss. Oh, we bet. were targeting about three percent was good. If you did around five, you were phenomenal in that industry. So can you imagine? You you can't imagine because you've done I was it. There, but three out of a hundred opportunities that came in the door is what you're expected to yeah. sell, and you're doing a very good job.
0: And you still owe the same level of enthusiasm and excitement and professionalism and solution mindset Mm -hmm. to all hundred of them Mm -hmm. because you don't exactly know which of the three are going to fall your way.
1: Man, I could tell you so many stories about the ones that I knew would sell and I wanted so badly to sell, didn't sell. And then you have these ones that you forgot about for a month and all of a sudden you get an email saying, hey, congratulations, you won the business. You go, I don't even remember what case this was, right? Like Because it's so much of it is Outside of your control. Yeah. So the best you can do, like you said, is control your effort, your process, your follow up, your skill set, etc. And then you sort of relinquish the uh, control of the outcome. Totally.
0: Yeah. For me, two of the biggest uh, attributes that I've been blessed to have is I-, I have an an unlimited amount of enthusiasm and an un- a never ending uh, level of excitement. Yeah. That I can apply towards lots of different things. And so when I've been able to put those into sales situations more times than not, things have have fallen in our direction. But I also, I was the mayor of Loserville for a long time. And I I, I ran that city for a long time. I'm happy to resign that position uh, and move on in my career. But Spencer, share with us a little bit about the concept of being self-funded and what that is. And how did you find your path to being to the self-funded world within employee benefits?
1: So I'll answer the first one because that's easier answer and then I'll do the explanation side. So I found it um, at that brokerage I referenced earlier. The company was Hayes Companies, who's now been absorbed and bought by Mm -hmm. Brown & Brown. I got to study under the tutelage of Eric Templin and Dale Brickert, who were very much masters at self-funding, especially taking employers from this realm of fully insured and moving them into self-funded, which I'll explain in a second. They kind of mastered that transition. And at the time, 10, 11 years ago, employers in the Dallas, uh, Texas marketplace They were gobbling that up because for a 100 life employer hearing that type of story, they just weren't accustomed to. And so it was really, really easy for them because they were good at that particular skill to win business. And I got to observe some of the best doing that at the time. So they taught me everything. I learned the financials. I learned the spreadsheeting. I learned reporting. I learned claims, stop loss, you name it. All the things that you're required to understand what self-funding is. I got a crash course in it as an analyst. Um, And I really, really think the numbers are are what made it all click for me because I kind of have a finance mind. But I like the fact that self-funding combines the artistry of there's creativity. There's never a definitively right answer, but there also is evidence-based recommendations based on mathematics and projections and underwriting, et cetera, that can get you very, very close to what the right answer is. But still, at the end of the day, you're just going off your own educated guests and recommendations and things like that. So it combined the creativity and the numbers uh, very well. And then there's a communication component as well. But let me explain uh, to answer the first part of your question, what is self-funding? Yeah. Um, I think the easiest way to understand self-funding is to draw context, uh, Chris, with what it's not. And most employers and most people understand what it means to be fully insured. So you go to an insurance company, you give them your census if you're an employer, let's say you have 20 lives, you go there they give you a quote you say these plan designs if you pay us this premium for the year you're covered you you have insurance and we the insurance company will take in all the risk we'll manage the claims everything comes under one roof but what you're doing there is you're pre-paying for insurance so that employer is deferring the risk to that insurance carrier but the carrier is dictating the price and then there's no insight there's no control there's no really choice there's no ability to impact the outcome that employer is effectively at the mercy of the insurer so you prepay it so if you spend a million dollars on premium and three hundred thousand dollars of claims that seven hundred thousand dollars that's left over is not the employers to keep it's the insurance company there's limitations but it's the insurance companies to keep the profit when you sell fund you say hold on I, the employer, want to take on the risk rather than prepaying for claims. I'm going to pay as I go as they come in. And that opportunity to manage those fluctuations ultimately is the opportunity for employers to actually take back control of their, their healthcare destiny. That's okay. the very simplistic version.
0: I know there's, the way, there's yeah. a lot more that goes into that. So what, what sort of organizations are best suited mm-hmm. to go self-funded?
1: So broadly speaking, I mean, you're going to look at, I'm in the world of captives, so we'll go down to 50 lives as kind of our baseline. So 50 enrolled employees would be the the floor for us. Um, But it's very common to get level funded, groups that are level funded, which is a version of self-funding, 20 lives, 25 lives. It really comes down to a mindset of an employer. What am I trying to do? Uh, We call it having your damn it moment. So that CFO that's sitting at the desk and getting renewals over and over again, 20% increases, 15% increases, and there's no justification. They say, damn it, there's got to be something better. That's where Pareto Health might come in as a captive, or that's where self-funding as a mechanism to take back control of the healthcare spend, that's where it would come up. Stable cash flow, a little bit of risk tolerance, things like that. Um, a lot of boring insurance <laughs> jargon, believe me. But it's really about the mindset of an employer. What are they trying to accomplish? Self funding is simply just the vehicle to accomplish their goals.
0: Okay. So what is what is being successful with a self funded plan? What's that look like for a
1: company? Um, well, most people pursue it originally to be uh, to save money, right? Like that is the impetus for the majority of employers. Is I can't keep spending this year after year. I can't absorb these increases. I've got to save money. So once we check that box, you don't, you're not guaranteed to save money, but on average over time, the overwhelming majority, if not all, uh, employers will benefit from being self-funded rather than fully insured. But it might take five, six, seven years to really prove that out. Other than that, they want control of their vendor partners. They wanna actually see what's driving their claims. So do you have a lot of people going to the ER in a rural area that there's not other options? Do you have a lot of people that are diabetic and are not adherent to their insulin medication, things like that. Those things, that type of evidence of where your claims are coming from, isn't really visible or accessible when you're fully insured. So an employer that wants to know what's driving my costs and then after that since I can now measure it, I can manage it, they want to be able to take control, work with a consultant that will build that strategy, and it's really about, you know, actively managing your health plan rather than deferring it to somebody else.
0: It does require you've, you gotta, you got to you want to have to put your hands on the wheel. You got to be yeah. Um, in charge of steering this process. Yeah. Um, sometimes a CFO, a business operator, a business sure. owner, they got a lot of already going on, right? They're trying to win in their particular industry. Mm-hmm. So to take this on, it seems like there's a lot of friction that can come with that. Sure. So what does Pareto Health do when it comes to relieving some of that friction? How do you how do you align yourselves? How does Pareto specifically Predo Health, align themselves with a business to try to limit that friction from saying, you know what, I damn it, I'm tired of getting these increases, but also, damn it, I don't know that I have the time or the energy or the knowledge to understand how to take on this new path. Yeah.
1: Well, I think the first thing, it starts with education. Everything we do is predicated on education first. So we work only with consultants that we've taken through our educational process that have leaned in. And it's kind of a mindset underwriting where we go, let's assume you were a consultant, Chris. We'd say, hey, Chris, this is what we do. This is who we're for. This is how it works. And this is why it's successful. If at the end of that call, you go, I'm, I'm really interested, this sounds great. Then we work with you to determine, well, who are the employers on your block of business that this is the best fit for? So we start with you with education, then next we take the next step and we educate the employer. So we educate your client. And It is all education, it is not a heavy, heavy sales process. Usually what happens as a result of that call that employer goes, yes, I want this. But we follow that process before we ever table any numbers because we don't want employers that are simply pursuing a reaction to a bad renewal Correct. or pursuing cheap rates on a spreadsheet and that's how they're buying. We want you to say, this is what I'm willing to lean in to do. I want the reward of this thing called Pareto Health is captive, but I'm also willing to lean in and do my job in the whole transaction in the whole function. So a consultant's gonna be the one that's gonna manage a lot of the activity and steer a lot of the ship for that employer. So they're not doing it on their own. They're doing it with their benefits consultant. And then all the vendors, the third-party administrators, the PBMs, point solutions, they're all playing their specific role within that ecosystem as well. So the employer has to do some paperwork. They have to get used to you know, claims coming in on a monthly basis and that fluctuating a little bit. Yeah. But other than that, you bring in these vendors who are like your team and they're managing uh, their their part.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think that education, when you can educate people and it's not a sale, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's where I have found my greatest strengths and my greatest wins in business have been all through education of where you are, where you're trying to go and what is required in between. That's not a decision for me to force upon you. Mm -hmm. you got to decide that you want to go to this new place, this future state. I can help you there and I can get you there. Maybe I can get you there faster, but you do have to be willing to go through that process. Me watching that fasting video uh, with you and Mark was I learned some things and thinking, okay, I never thought about if prior to last week someone said, hey, I dare, would you ever do a three-day fast? I would say you're out of your mind. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Now I'm gonna work my way up to it, yeah. but I'm kind of stoked to, to after learning what your body actually does and goes through to help reset itself. I'm kind of I'm very intrigued to go through that process and see what that does for me internally. That wouldn't have happened if I didn't take the time to educate myself yep. and be open to listening to what you all were sharing with people. And what it ultimately comes down
1: to is I think that podcast maybe left you with some reassurance that what you were wanting to do is possible, right? then when a good sales process will add in evidence, hey, this is the promised land that we're hoping to lead you to, here's the evidence to show this is what other employers have done to get there. We've got thousands upon thousands of employers that have done the same thing. Millions of people have fasted, they've obviously survived, there's protocols to follow, there's best practices. Right. But just knowing that it's possible and seeing somebody put a little bit of a blueprint in front of
0: you makes it so much easier to make the decision to do yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, and for employers, that evidence of saying other companies that have similar industries, mm-hmm. similar size, similar SICs, there are you're not only, this isn't only for you. This is being done and activated yep. across the country, yep. across other employers. One of the videos you recently shared was around the top five benefits to learn about in 2024. Yeah. yeah. Number one was DPC, direct primary care. Number two was gag clause attestation, uh, coming from the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Yeah. That's a mouthful, right? That is a lot to <laughs> say. <clears throat> number three was uh, non-network solutions. Yep. Uh, reference-based pricing, direct contracting, and bundled surgery procedures. Yep. Number four were captives, like Pareto Captain. Health. Yep. Uh, small to mid-sized employers seem to be kind of the sweet spot for captives. Correct. Uh, and then five PBMs, pharmacy benefit mm-hmm. managers. So those are the five things. What I would like to do is I want to talk about number one. Yeah. Direct primary care. Tell us what direct primary care is, and then what are the pros and cons of DPC, Mm -hmm. and why do you think that that's going to be something that people should really focus on to learn more about and educate in 2024
1: well so i'd say first off i'm glad you picked dpc out of that list there's a reason why i put it first um, of course i had captives in there and my employer is in the captive business those other ones are important as well but i think dpc is the easiest to sort of prove the model to the layperson that's not interacting with the healthcare system uh, a lot so dpc stands for direct primary care direct primary care is simply rather than a model that we know today which is our our physician Our primary care physician is on something called fee for service. Every time they provide a service, they charge a fee. They submit that fee to an insurance company, there's negotiations and eventually that fee is paid, A percentage of it will be paid by the insurance company and the employee. That's fee for service. What's happened in the fee-for-service world, though, is you have huge patient panels where 3,000 people might be on this doctor's uh, panel. You might get five to seven to 10 minutes with your physician, because he or she's got to churn an assembly line of people through the door in order to be profitable. They have heavy administrative staff, so they're having to have a lot of people on staff simply to bill the insurance company. And you're getting a lower uh, quality outcome from the patient's perspective. You're getting less time with your doctor. The doctor's quality of life is tremendously uh, uh, you know i don't want to say detrimented but it's the overall quality of their life is is decreased as well because of that so we have this pressure valve that's been created a lot of private equity money coming in there as well i won't get too much into that but a lot of money is in there that's forcing the system to react this way in fee for service dpc comes along is a, the antithesis of that so rather than every time that doctor provides a service you pay a fee an employer typically will pay a monthly membership fee for all the people in that in their business. So let's say they had 100 people, they might pay $75 a month for those 100 people each to have access to this doctor. So now, rather than that doctor charging every time they deliver a service, they're getting all their money on a predictable reoccurring monthly membership fee, and now they get to focus on time with the patient. They have smaller panels, less administrative burden. It's all cash-based, so they're not billing insurance. And a lot more can be kept in the primary care ecosystem without the nickeling and diming that tipping typically happens today.
0: Thank, Thank you me. so much. This is Healthcare Ain't Easy. Healthcare ain't easy, but with people like Spencer, with the good work that he and Pareto Health are doing out there to make incredible impact, healthcare can become easier when we all collaborate and connect together. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you soon.